Matthew chapter 10, 34 to 39. I did not come to bring peace on the earth. This is now part 3. 10.34 Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that we will be found worthy. We pray, Lord, that when you return on your second coming, that we will be found in you, in peace, spotless, and blameless, that we will adhere to you, cling to you, and never be ashamed of you or your words when you come in the glory of your Father with the holy angels. Lord, we want to save our life no matter the cost, and we want to save our life in you. So, Lord, give us this desire and grant us, Lord, the fulfillment of this salvation that you have given to us. May we see it, may we experience it, each and every one of us. For we ask in your holy name. Amen. We've already covered a couple of already, uh, main messages on the subject, an introductory message on what we mean by peace, what the Bible means by peace, what the world means by peace, and what Jesus also here means by peace and does not mean by peace, based on the previous two messages. Last time also, we saw many examples in the book of Genesis on what kinds of conflicts actually did arise in families. And this is where the rubber meets the road, or this is where the greatest conflict or the greatest consternation comes to all of us when it happens to our own kit and kin, when it happens to our own relatives, when it happens especially to our own parents or our own siblings or our own children. When it happens to them, even grandchildren, when it happens to them, that's when we find it very difficult, very hard to understand to believe and to embrace these words of Christ. Christ, he clearly says, he did not come to bring peace on the earth. He came to bring peace in other ways, but he did not come to bring peace in this way. That is to guarantee that husband and wife will always both believe the gospel and be in harmony in that gospel. He did not come for that. He did not come so that son and father would have this permanent peace and harmony in their relationship, nor with daughter and mother, or daughter and father, or mother and son, or any other combination of relationship. He did not come to make sure, to guarantee that they always get along with each other until death. He did not come to guarantee that. In fact, he came to do the opposite. He came to bring a sword, he says in verse 34. He came to bring a sword. He came to therefore bring contention and division, not because we are pursuing sin, but because we are pursuing righteousness. 
When we pursue righteousness, we will be persecuted by those, even our closest relatives, by those who hate that righteousness, who hate to see that kind of godliness, who hate to hear the words of righteousness, and who hate the God who has transformed us to love his righteousness. They will hate us because they ultimately hate God. Rarely will they ever admit that they hate God. They'll always claim to love God. But if they hate us, if they hate the family of God, if they hate the people of God, then they hate God. This is the truth of what Jesus means here. He says in chapter 10, verse 40, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So if we don't receive the messenger of Christ, we don't receive Christ. And if we don't receive Christ, we do not receive the Father. Chapter 12, verse 30, Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. He who is not with me in righteousness, in the gospel, is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. If our opponents, if our persecutors are not gathering with us the way God expects us to gather with him, then they are scattering They are not gatherers, but scatterers. And if they are scatterers, then they don't belong to Christ. They must be gathering as Christ expects us to gather. If they go along with us to gather, then they belong to us. But if they do not, then they do not belong to us, nor especially do they belong to God. The way they treat us reflects on their hatred of God. This is the point, one of the major points we must understand. When we don't understand it, it puts us in delusion. It puts us in confusion. It makes us upset and discouraged. Well, they're Christians, but if they're Christians, then why is it that I'm being treated this way by them? We get perplexed and confused by that. No, they're not Christians. We must accept the fact that they are not believers. They do not love God. They are not Christians. 1 John 4, 19 to 21. 1 John 4, 19. We love because, we fir- because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love God, or who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. If we truly have the love of God within us, it will have first descended from heaven into us, into our soul. God, we love God only because he first loved us. Then if God has loved us, then that love will show in how we treat one another. Brother with brother, even brother with brother, claiming to be Christian brothers. But if someone says, I love God, and demonstrates hatred toward his brother, even blood brother, who claim to be Christians, everyone claims to be Christian, blood brothers, he is a liar if he's hating him. 
if he's mistreating him, if he's persecuting him. He's a liar. He doesn't really love God. Because if he won't love his blood-believing brother whom he has seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. Of course, John is not talking about blood brothers only. He's talking about anybody claiming to be in the family of God and saying that they love God and love each other. But if their love is actually hatred, they are liars. The commandment from God is to love God and should love his brother also. Keeping this in mind, let's continue our investigation of Old Testament passages because the Old Testament and the New, they are replete, they are full of many, many examples of this truth because the Lord wants to make the point absolutely clear to us so that when the division takes place, when the conflict takes place, we are able to deal with it properly. We must handle it properly. We begin in now the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 4, Exodus 4, 24 to 26. Moses and his wife have a conflict because of the sin of Moses. Moses and his wife have a conflict and it takes his wife to intercede, to intervene, to stand up and do what's right, to avert the danger. Exodus 4, 24. Now, it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. The him here is Moses. 25. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Moses did not circumcise his son. And danger awaited. Danger was about to happen. Sought to put him to death. It says in verse 24, The Lord sought to put Moses to death for transgressing this one ritualistic commandment, circumcise your son on the eighth day. He did not do it. So his wife, Zipporah, intervenes. She takes a flint, a flint knife, cuts off her son's foreskin, and then, in disgust, in disgust, not in sin, but in disgust, she threw the foreskin at the feet of Moses and said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. You didn't handle your responsibility. You made me do it. And now look what has happened. God sought to put you to death. Presumably, Moses, some commentators believe that Moses fell ill and had a fatal illness. But after this incident was miraculously recovered from his fatal illness because she intervened. The conflict, the husband, Moses, did not act as he should, so the wife had to do what he refused to do. Leviticus chapter 10. 
Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. This is the account of the sons of Aaron. The first two sons of Aaron, they were installed as priests along with Aaron to conduct some of the duties. In the newly formed, newly constructed tabernacle, the tent of meeting, it's during its inauguration, it has barely begun to do any ministry, ministry inside the tabernacle. This is when this incident happens of all times. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. We can imagine what kind of grief Aaron experienced seeing that his sons, newly installed to offer services in the tabernacle, the first ever and only tabernacle that was wonderfully constructed as described in the book of Exodus. This was constructed and his two sons, his oldest two sons are responsible and they transgressed the commandment of God, verse 1 says, by offering strange fire, fire from a forbidden location. God told them from where they should gather fire to burn the incense. But they gathered it, picked it up from the wrong place, therefore God killed them instantly because they disobeyed. Can you imagine what was going on with Aaron? He lost two sons, and God shows just because they're your sons and just because I chose you to be the first high priest, it doesn't mean I'm going to show favor. If your sons sin, I will slay them even instantly if I so choose. And it brought this kind of grief and discouragement in the household of Aaron because of their disobedience. Aaron was supposed to side with the Lord, which he did. He didn't gripe. He didn't complain. He didn't grumble. Certainly he was saddened, but he did not accuse God. He was reminded by Moses, Moses, the brother of Aaron, that God must be treated as holy. God must be honored before all the people. And priest, whether your sons do it or not, you must understand this. You must always honor me. Treat me as holy showing no partiality towards family members. Speaking of that, Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. Another sore conflict in the family of Moses. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Numbers 12, 1. We read 1 to 16. In particular, take note of verses 1 and 2 
and 6 to 8. Numbers 12, 1 and 2, and 6 to 8. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman, and they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. When they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. And Moses cried out to the Lord saying, O God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterwards she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move until Miriam was received again. Afterward, however, the people moved out from Hazarot and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Presumably, Miriam is the instigator because of chapter 12, verse 1. It mentions her name first. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. And we do also know that Aaron seems to have a proclivity, a bent to letting people influence him because in Exodus 32, the people influenced him to build a golden calf. And Moses had to confront Aaron and the people on that matter too. Here too, Miriam entices Aaron. So the two of them, they come up to Moses to confront him because he married this Cushite woman. But notice, it's not just the Cushite woman, but they have a greater goal. Their greater scheme is to say, Verse 2, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. They take this marriage of Moses and the Cushite woman and make an issue out of that, but their greater goal is what? They want the people to follow them. It's not just that they're 
opposed to the marriage. They want the people to follow them because if the Lord speaks through them, then the people can listen to them and not listen to Moses only. But God already ordained that Moses was the prophet and though Aaron was three years older than he, Aaron was to be subservient to Moses. And even Miriam, older than Moses, was to be subservient to Moses under the headship, leadership of the Lord, appointing Moses. They didn't like that. So they wanted to undermine it. They were the older children. They wanted to undermine the youngest. And so they caused this conflict. This is why God confronts it, because ultimately they are against the authority of God. Not Moses, but God, when they opposed Moses in this conflict. And God said in verses 6 to 8, there's nobody like Moses. I have revealed myself to Moses in a unique way, a way in which I have not revealed myself to the rest of the prophets. So why would you speak against Moses? He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't sin in this case. And now you're rising up against him. And this is why God's anger burned against them. And then he struck Miriam with leprosy, which would look very gruesome, unappealing. And she had it for seven (coughs) days. Seven days of leprosy. And had to be shut up outside the camp. God was with Moses, not Aaron and Miriam. Though God has also spoken his word to them, they rose up against Moses, and therefore, who's in the right? Either all three are wrong, or one is right, two are wrong, two are right, one is wrong. There's a conflict. And God was on Moses' side. Number 16. Number 16, on another occasion, the, the authority of Moses is challenged. Korah sought to undermine the authority of Moses. The God-appointed calling and appointment of Moses, Korah sought to undermine. Korah, he was able to convince 250 of the men of, among the leaders of the people to oppose Moses. And it says this, number 16, we'll read excerpts, number 16, 1 to 3. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. And they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have, gone to, you have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? What is this accusation? They claim, Korah and his men claim, that Moses and Aaron exalted themselves, put themselves above the rest of the people so that they became the leaders by usurpation, by 
going and taking the honor and the glory of leadership themselves. But that's not how it happened. Moses and Aaron were called by the Lord. They didn't say, I, I think today it's a good idea that we be the leader of the people. And Aaron, Moses' idea, and then Aaron, you, you can be the high priest. And then I'll build this tabernacle. And we'll all say it's for the Lord. And be leaders over the people. No, that's not how it happened. But that's what Korah is saying. Korah knows this isn't true. But Korah wants everything to be equal. Every one of them to be a leader. Because he says, every one of them, every one of them is holy. Verse 3. We know what happens. In the rest of the chapter, God, he is angry again. And he makes a distinction. And what he does, he threatens to destroy everyone who, uh, who sides with Korah and his 250 men. I will destroy them all. And I'll destroy them suddenly. And he did. The earth opened up. They assembled. They, they stood in different parts. The earth opened up. And God made all of these people who were still alive fall into the earth in a massive earthquake. And they all died. But before that happened, God said to the people, you need to figure out who is on the Lord's side and who is not on the Lord's side, and you better stand in the right place. And this is what happened. 1625. 1625 to 27. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following them. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing that belongs to them, lest you be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents, along with their wives and their sons, and their little ones. Pick it up at verse 31. 31 to 35. Then it came about, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. It says here, Dathan Abiram and their wives and children, little ones even, little ones, meaning infants, babies, all of them sided with the one, along with Korah and the 250. They all sided with each other. Now we pick it up in 26. Numbers 26, verse 9. Numbers 26, 9. 26, verse 9. And the sons of Eliab, Nemuel, and Dathan and Abiram, these are the Dathan and Abiram 
Abiram, who were called by the congregation, who contended against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah, when they contended against the Lord. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with Korah, when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, so that they became a warning. The sons of Korah, however, did not die. We see here that though Dathan, Abiram, 250 men of Korah, it says here, the sons of Korah, they knew Korah was in the wrong. Their father. Their father was in the wrong, so they did not side with their father. Therefore, they did not die. They had to make a choice. They had to practice some judgment or discernment to know who's in the right and who is in the wrong, even if this one is my relative. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy 13. The Lord gives his statutes on what to do with idolaters. And it's not just idolaters who are strangers and unknown to us, but idolaters as close as those in our own family and even as close as one who lies in our bosom. Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dream arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end. You shall not yield to him. Or listen to him, and your eye shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall stone him to death, because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. Verse 12. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying, 
that some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known. Then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. And if it is true and the matter established that this abomination has been done among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. Then you shall gather all its booty into the middle of its open square and burn the city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. And it shall be a ruin forever. It shall never be rebuilt. And nothing from that which is put under the ban shall cling to your hand in order that the Lord may turn from his burning anger and show mercy to you and have compassion on you and make you increase just as he has sworn to your fathers. If you will listen to the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments, which I am commanding you today, and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. This prohibition to idolatry, against idolatry, to worship other gods, whether near or far gods, this applies to the towns, to the cities, and it also applies in verses 6 to 11 to the family. He says in verse 6, your brother, mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish. Now, this phrase rendered, the wife you cherish, is literally the wife of your bosom. The wife of your bosom. That's a Hebraism, speaking of the tenderness of husband and wife relationship. The wife of your bosom. In other words, the wife you cherish. Even if it's your own wife, he's saying here. Of course, the reciprocal is true, even if it's your own husband. That if this temptation arises and the idolatry is coming, emanating from your closest relatives, you should have nothing to do with it. And in the jurisdiction of the law of Moses, the penalty was the death penalty. Of course, now we have in the local church the obligation, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, to expel such a one from the church to remove him from our midst, even if it's our own relative. Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21. In Deuteronomy 21, 1 to 9, a homicide has occurred. Bloodshed has occurred. And when this bloodshed occurs, and it's unknown to all the people, a man is lying there dead, slain in the field, in some place. He's dead. Nobody knows what has happened. The elders are supposed to make sure that they offer this prescribed sacrifice to remove guilt because bloodshed, innocent bloodshed, should never take place. Never, ever take place. Now, having said that, he does then at the end of the chapter, speak of 
guilty blood being shed. He contrasts it in the end of the chapter with guilty blood shed. But before we reach that place, in verses 10 to 14, 10 to 14, he speaks there of what is to be done when a man marries a captive woman, captive in battle. What is to be done or not done? How they are to treat or he is to treat her. In 15 to 17, how the man who has two wives, one loved and the other unloved or hated, this actually happened with Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel, he hated Leah, but he married her by accident and he had these two wives. So what was Jacob supposed to do or what are, what's the man to, to do right here? He's supposed to give the proper inheritance to the hated wife's son. When there's conflict, he's supposed to act righteously, even with his closest relatives. That's in verses 15 to 17. Then we find in 18 to 21, this is in contrast to 21, 1 to 9. 21, 18. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. To chastise means to discipline, to scold him, to threaten, and also to punish. He will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him. Who? He disobeys father and mother. And who is supposed to act? Father and mother. Though it is contrary to the nature of mothers to do so, usually, isn't it the nature? It happens with fathers too, but even with mothers to indulge their children. Fathers sometimes indulge their children too, especially if the child is the youngest child and if the child is a daughter. Fathers will often indulge their children. Mothers too. So, but it says here, father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Gluttons are not only so consumed and selfish about their own appetites, but they are often careless with their responsibilities. They are lazy. It's typical with gluttony. And drunkenness. If one is drunk, if one is intoxicated, then he does not have his senses to be a sober and responsible young man. He's always getting drunk. He's not in his right mind in both cases, but he refuses to listen. The parents are supposed to present the evidence. And like we read in chapter 13, the elders are supposed to investigate everything thoroughly. And when they find that this is the case, then what is to be done? Verse 21, then all the men of his city shall stone him to death, so you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear of it and fear. Father and mother to their own son. And presumably in the town, 
village, in the city, you will have other relatives living there. All of them are supposed to participate in the death of this one son who deserves to be put to death. They are all supposed to do it, whether near relative or far relative. Doing the will of God. This would certainly bring grief to the parents before, during, and after the fact. Yet it's supposed to be done. Let's move on to the book of Judges. The book of Judges and chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. Samson, the judge, he marries a woman named Delilah. And Delilah, she's a pretender. She claims to love Samson, to have her heart with Samson, when actually she was very enticing, very deceptive, and very unloving toward her own husband, Samson. But a conflict arises in that the Philistines seek to find out how to capture and kill or capture and imprison Samson. They seek to find a way. And they know his wife knows how uh, or could get the answer. They know that the wife has a proclivity to nag, to be contentious, to urge, to annoy, to death. So they pursued the wife. The Philistines pursued the wife and said, we know that Samson has miraculous, amazing powers. How is that the case? Why is that the case? Find out why, because we want to seize him. We want to entrap him. We want to put him in our prison. He has been against our nation and killing many of our men. The Philistines were overlords of Israel. And God raised up Samson for freedom from the Philistines. So whatever Samson had done against the Philistines was righteous. But the Philistines, they approach Delilah, his wife. And we pick it up at chapter 16, verse 15. 15, uh, 16, 15. Then she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. And it came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. She begs him. She urges him. She annoys him to death. She even accuses him of not loving her. How can you say, I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. 
She presses him daily, urges him with her words, annoys him to death. Now, is she behaving in a loving way towards him? No. She's claiming love for him and claiming that he does not love her but hates her when actually the opposite is happening. Samson and everyone observing it should see through it. She is the hater, not the lover. He is the lover, not the hater. But even the lover, the true lover, Samson, in this marriage, he couldn't put up with it. This is the danger. Samson practicing righteousness, Samson concealing the secret as he was supposed to conceal, eventually revealed it and it led to his arrest. He was not supposed to concede to his wicked wife, but he did. A righteous man conceding to a wicked wife. And when he did, it led to his demise. First, his imprisonment, then mockery and persecution by the Philistines against him, and finally, his own premature death by the end of the chapter. Because he would not resist the wickedness of his wife. First, Samuel. Let's go to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. 17, 28. The Philistines are threatening King Saul and Israel, and they have a champion, Goliath. And Goliath and Israel, the two nations, they are at a standstill. They're trying to determine which one soldier among the Philistines and which one among Israel will fight each other. And it ends up being Goliath against David. Goliath against David. But David does not know about this challenge yet. And notice 1728. He knows about the war, but he does not know about the challenge. So he comes and he comes bringing goods, produce, food from his father to his brothers on the battlefield. Remember, there are no local restaurants on the battlefield, so it has to come from these sources. 1728, David is coming with a good delivery and with good intentions. 1728, now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. And what was it that David asked? David asked, well, what's going on here? What, what, why is, has this battle been stalled, in other words? And the people are telling him that the uncircumcised Philistine, the Goliath, he's out there taunting and waiting for some man of Israel. And Saul has said that whoever willingly, voluntarily 
fights the Philistine, Goliath, and kills him, that I will make him free in Israel, meaning free of taxes, and you will be able to marry one of my daughters. Okay, so that's the reward. And David doesn't know anything about this, but he's wondering what's going on. You aren't engaged in battle. And the people, the soldiers, they tell him. And then they told him again in verse 30. But Eliab, Eliab picks a fight with evil suspicion. Eliab, his brother, the oldest brother in the family of Jesse, he picks a fight, a contention with his brother David. David had no ill motive. He was just wondering what's going on. Yes, David was an expert warrior, but at this time, he was commissioned to take care of the flock. And temporarily, they are put in the hands of someone else while he goes to the battlefield. Because his own father told him, go to the battlefield with all these goods to supply to your own brothers. Nothing wrong with David. Everything wrong with Eliab. Attacking David. Chapter 25. 25 verses 9 to 13. Chapter 25, we find an incident where David and his men have been very good to a man, a wealthy man named Nabal, whose wife is Abigail. Nabal and Abigail. David and his men are fleeing from Saul. They are desperate. They are out there in the wilderness, in the fields, in the deserts. And while they're there, they're being kind and generous toward all of the landowners. They're not going into the landowners, into their fields, and ravaging the fields. They're not taking whatever they see. They're being very kind. They negotiate. They protect. They're doing whatever they should be doing in a righteous and godly way. But Nabal, he is a worthless, selfish, devilish man. He does not appreciate it. When David was in need, he sent some men to him. And Nabal says this, when David was in need, verse 9, 25, 9. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shares and give it to men whose origin I do not know. So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. And David said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. Well, then what happens? Abigail, the wife of Nabal, is told by her young men what conversation just happened between David's men and Nabal. And she also is afraid and probably knows that David is about to assemble his men and even David his own sword to come and attack Nabal for that treatment. Now, David's action would have been wrong action. It would have been wrong and he would have shed innocent blood. That would have been excessive retaliation. He should not have retaliated in any way. 
but it would have been excessive. But Abigail intercedes. And Abigail, the wife of Nabal, who eventually becomes the wife of David, because Nabal dies prematurely, that Abigail rose up contrary to her husband. Her husband Nabal is a wicked man. Abigail is a righteous woman. And when she saw the danger, when she saw that everyone's life was in danger because David and his men were about to come and attack, 1 Samuel 25, 23. We read 25, 23 to verse 26. This is what Abigail does and says to David against her own husband. 25, 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and let those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. What does she do? She intervenes by going to David, pleading with him. She hurried and did it, verse 23. She is very humble. She falls at his feet. She constantly calls him my Lord and calls herself your maidservant. She says, I wasn't there when that exchange took place, the dialogue took place, and I wasn't there when my husband Nabal said all of those wrong and hurtful and evil things against you and your servants. And notice also 25. The name Nabal, Nabal or Nabal in Hebrew means folly, folly or foolishness. He has this name, Nabal, and she says, Nabal is his name and folly is with him. She's basically saying he is rightly named fool. This is the wife saying it of her husband because the husband is wicked. And she's saying it not only to him, but to David. Saying it to David. Further, she's trying to prevent innocent blood being shed in verse 26 which is right. That's why she hurried. But also notice, she says in 26, Now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Nabal was such a reprobate, perverse man. And she actually says that there is nobody able to talk to him. He is such a a worthless fellow, such a son of the devil, son of Belial, it says in 2517, and he is such 
a worthless man, son of the devil or son of Belial, that no one can speak to him. You cannot even have a calm, cool, reasonable, logical conversation with him. But what's she saying here? May a curse be on him. There's already a curse on him, but may all of the enemies of David be just as Nabal, who already has a curse on him because he's such a reprobate. My own husband is such a reprobate, a curse is on him, he will never repent. And may David's enemies be like him. And this eventually took place. 2538. And about 10 days later, it happened that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Premature death, a curse on him. Righteous Abigail against her wicked husband. She did what was right in the sight of the Lord. We have not finished our journey. There are many more examples. In this case, the most recent one, we find a wife, a righteous wife against her wicked husband, standing up and doing what's right. Many times, under the cloak, under the cloak of male headship, these days in some evangelical churches, they talk about male headship in the church. Yes, they talk about it. Some of them practice it. Many of them don't. But the wives knowing it, they easily hide under the shadow of their husband and say, well, my husband doesn't want to do that. My husband doesn't want to go to this church, so I'm going to submit to him and not go to this church. Abigail did the opposite. Also, we saw last time in the book of Genesis, Genesis 21, Sarah did the opposite. She told Abraham what he needed to hear for him to obey. Sometimes husbands are right. Sometimes wives are right. Whoever is right must do what's right and others should follow. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.